You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is, is The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode as ever. On this month's edition, we'll take you back to 2019's Amsterdam dance event. ADE is one of the music industry's key annual get-togethers, and its panels and discussions this year were rich in variety. I've picked out a panel that I hosted at ADE Green to share with you, titled The Art of Activism and the Activism of Art where I set out to explore the different ways we can campaign through music, arts and events. Throughout this episode of The Hour, you'll hear from Eli Goldstein, half of the DJ duo Soul Clap and campaigner for DJs for Climate Action, Benjamin Sasser of Meadows in the Mountains Festival and Extinction Rebellion, DJ, producer and environmental scientist Jada G, Paul Reed, the CEO of the Association of Independent Festivals, and Wessel van Eden, co-founder of Raindance Project. So music has always been intertwined with idealism and expression of ideas. In this panel, we'll explore the different ways that we can campaign through music, arts and events. So we're going to be looking at how to form a movement at scale and create real impact. We'll look at what makes a good campaign and what strategies have proved successful amongst our panellists. Um, I have five voices who are kind of leading the charge here with me today. Let's have you all introduce yourselves and perhaps we'll start with Jada. Hi everyone, I'm Jada, aka Jada G. I'm a DJ and music producer. Um, and yeah, I also uh, host a talk series called JMG Talks. Okay, I'm Eli Goldstein. I'm half of DJ production duo Soul Clap and also very involved with an organization called DJs for Climate Action and focusing a lot of my activism around climate. Hey, um, I'm Benji. Um, I'm co-founder of Meadows in the Mountains Festival in Bulgaria. And um, I'm also doing some work with Extinction Rebellion at the moment, full-time in London. My name is Wessel van Eden. I'm the marketing director for a foundation called Just Dig It, working on nature-based solutions to regreen our planet. And I'm also the co-founder of the Raindance Project. I'm Paul Reed. I'm the chief exec of the Association of Independent Festivals, AIF. Um, we're a national trade association based in the UK. 65 members of all shapes and sizes, some of the larger independents in the UK and a lot of smaller grassroots events as well. We represent those festivals and provide a support network for them. Thanks everyone for being here today. I would like to start by asking each of you to share with us a moment throughout music's history that has really stuck with you relating to a campaign or an engaging political movement. Um, if you could tell us about a moment that stands out to you and why, Eli? For me, the most significant is uh, the Stonewall Massacre and then the ensuing um, gay rights movement that was born in 1979 at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, which is one of the birthplaces of disco music. You know, originally disco was a very gay and marginalized community in New York, and the police 
had been harassing the gay clubs, and there was a moment where they tried to shut down the Stonewall Inn, which was one of the most important clubs at that time, and the patrons started a riot, and the police, you know, beat them down, and it became a rallying cry for gay rights in the United States and throughout the world. So I think that's a really important, important dance music moment. I think for me, yeah, there was a movement um, that many of you will be aware of called Reclaim the Streets. So in the sort of mid to late 90s, um, they were focused very much on community ownership, public spaces, and kind of opposed to dominance of kind of corporate forces and globalization. So it's kind of, I was studying politics at the time, writing about it and attending events. Um, yeah, and it was a kind of protest against a strand of capitalism that was only the kind of tip of the iceberg, really. But the events were quite inspired by kind of rave culture, which in turn inspired the festival scene. So I think, yeah, I, I, do, I do think that the politics are often inseparable um, from events, really. Thank you. Jada? Um, I would say actually my example doesn't have so much to do with uh, music in, um, in that sense, but culturally it is very significant. Um, uh, if you guys don't know about me, I'm Canadian and I'm from the west coast of Canada, where um, currently still this is a huge issue. Canada um, uh, has something called the tar sands, where they... Uh, pull oil out of the ground, um, and it's, it's a very, very wasteful way to um, retrieve oil. And the government actually has been trying to build pipelines from the tar sands to the west coast. And actually, just a few years ago, they were building the pipelines right through um, my university. There's a, uh, a, a beautiful uh, protected forest that's around there, and it's also on sacred First Nations land. And they were trying to build it through there. And actually, it became something that the whole community really rallied um, against, and to the point where everyone was up on because it's like kind of situated on a mountaintop where they were trying to uh, build the pipelines where everyone, including the school and many people um, throughout Vancouver City actually would congregate on the mountain where they were trying to enter to uh, uh, kind of survey the area for these pipelines. And it's still an ongoing thing, actually. Um, and that's something I think for me personally, like... You know, you. Uh, I've worked in biology and ecology for a good chunk of my life, and this was something where it was actually like in my hometown, at my back doorstep. You know what I mean? And something that we were all very involved with, and really brought it home. And the realization of, you know, the, you know, the regular person kind of up against uh, capitalism, really, and. Uh, in terms of oil companies and such. Benji? Um, <clears throat> I hadn't had that much time to prepare for this question, so. <clears throat> kind of in one right now, anyway. I'm just gonna roll with it, which is, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think I was looking back historically over music and politics and how that blended together, and I felt like it was relevant for something in my lifetime that I'm experiencing, which is right now with um, Extinction Rebellion and um, you know, all the musicians that get up on that stage and, um, you know, risk arrest to voice um, the, the climate emergency. And um, I find that quite powerful to, to, to witness that on a, for the last two weeks, you know, seeing musicians up there singing 
their songs or playing their tracks. And um, you know, on the other side, you may see a policeman there who sheds a tear because of um, how that influences them. And I find that really special. All right, thank you for sharing. Russell? Um Yeah, I'm gonna <coughs> go for one that's uh, closer from my own experience. Is uh, I was previously involved with a project called Dance for Life, and I think we were one of the first charities to actually reach out to the electronic dance music community. So we had ambassadors like Tiesto, and at one point um, we connected Desmond Tutu, who was our patron and Nobel Peace Prize winner, to do sort of vocals for a track with Tiesto. So basically, we made Desmond Tutu an MC, and we lost that track during the World AIDS Conference in Toronto. Um, whereby there was a room full of suits who were talking about HIV and AIDS, obviously in a very political setting. And then we had Tiesto perform there with Desmond Tutu on the vocals, bringing together uh, like different worlds. So yeah, that made an impact for me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Wicked. Thank you everyone for sharing those incredible moments throughout history. Um, so at ADE Green, we have identified four main ways that campaigning through music can happen, which are by modeling, where music companies or artists set an example through their own actions, um, by supporting an external campaign, perhaps like Extinction Rebellion, or launching an industry campaign, which maybe Paul can tell us more about later on. And then there's also organizing an event for the sole purpose of campaigning, which perhaps Weissel can tell us about later on too. Um, so that is what we're going to spend the rest of our time this afternoon exploring and going through and drawing from the experiences of those on the panel. Jada, you have dedicated over 10 years of your life to environmental science. Could you tell us about when you first realized that you cared a lot about the environment? Um, I would say that I'm, I'm a really fortunate individual growing up in Canada where I grew up. I grew up in a really small town of about 4,000 people. So I grew up in the mountains surrounded mostly by forests and lakes and bears and all those things. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I... Uh, just by being in that area, you really do learn uh, a deep appreciation for the natural world. Um, I grew up being outside, you know, all the time and, you know, just going into the forest as a kid by myself, like that in itself is really a special and um, I'm very fortunate uh, to have that experience. And yeah, I'd say that's definitely like my f my first like real love. Like, you know, my parents used to take me fishing and hiking, and these are things like even to this day, like uh, me and my mother still try and plan like a week long hiking trip in the middle of like touring and everything because it's super important to me, and I think it keeps you grounded and connected to the earth. Would you tell everyone a bit more about your studies and what you focused on? Totally. So um, I started off my degree in biology and ecology. Um, I'm definitely like more of the academic side of things. And I went on to do my master's um, in environmental toxicology. So that's the study of pollution, uh, pollutants and how it affects the natural world around us. Um, what I studied particularly, I looked at nine different uh, chemicals and their health effects on orca whales, which are on the coast of uh, the west coast of Canada. And yeah, my degree specifically was in natural resource and environmental management. So I learned a lot constantly about, you know, how 
we as human beings on this earth, um, we really use natural resources for our own gains and how the repercussions of that uh, for our natural world and how there's more than just taking that resource. There's many different stakeholders at the table that are involved with this and what that actually means when you're trying to use natural resources in a sustainable way, really. And yeah, so that's kind of was my degree and what I worked in, I worked in, oh gosh, I, I've done so many research projects over the years. I've done research projects with obviously orca whales, um, various marine mammals um, like harbor seals and um, I've worked with reptiles and birds and lizards. I have literally like worked with like every animal. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and I want to go on actually to do my PhD. I was really, really, truly an academic. And um, really until the last couple years that that trajectory changed for me um, because as a hobby, I always used to DJ. Um, I have a huge, huge love for music. And this was something that really fed my soul as well, equally as much as um, nature and the outdoors. And so, um, yeah, over time, it kind of shifted. I finished my degree last year, um, and then now I continue as a DJ and music producer, um, as well as doing my talk series. Yes, tell us more about your talk series, JMG Talks. Yeah, um, man, so working in academia, um, I don't know if there's any academics in the crowd today. Um, working in academia, you're in a bubble. You work on your project tirelessly, um, and you don't really talk about your project to the greater world, and only really to truly an echo chamber. You talk um, your project about your project to other people who are either in your field or are other scientists or science affiliated. You're not talking to the regular person where it could actually make a difference. Um, and so I just really wanted to bridge that gap between young scientists who are working their buns off to produce really good quality scientific work and to the, the greater audience. And I've been gifted with this uh, beautiful platform through my DJ and music production. And I want to basically introduce my musical platform to the people that I know who are working on such amazing projects that really can affect people's opinion and outlook uh, on the natural world as well as build empathy with the natural world because I think that's what we're missing here with why we are in this climate crisis today is that we don't have empathy, love, and real uh, an understanding of our natural world in, in a deep sense, like how you have with like your family and such. You know, we need to build that kind of empathy. So this is my own small way of kind of crossing that, um, bridging that gap, basically. Amazing. Oh. Thank you. Weissel, would you like to tell us a bit more about your projects? Because you've just had the first Rain Dance event. Yes, we did. Um, and Rain Dance is a, an initiative by um, the NGO that I work for, Just Dig It. 
Um, very short, Just Dig It is restoring ecosystems at large. Um, we are active uh, only in Africa um, for several reasons, because Africa has the largest restoration potential, but also because Africa currently has 1.2 billion people, but at the turn of the century, as predictions are, they will have more than 4 billion people, and already uh, cities are quite polluted and growing. Um, so we restore ecosystems by doing very simple techniques. Um, we, we, do, we use rainwater harvesting, because in many uh, places where we work, when the rain falls in a very short period of time, it is unable to penetrate into the soil because the top layer of the soil is so hard due to overgrazing, deforestation, and then other um, uh, and climate change, of course. So, with the local communities, we have been restoring over a thousand hectares in Kenya and in Tanzania. We use another technique, uh, whereby in partnership uh, with, amongst others, Timberland. I just want to say that we're here in the room. We are bringing back f uh, 10 million trees in the coming five years, um, and all only using uh, smallhold farmers to teach them and inspire them using communication uh, training of trainers to have them improve their own soils. Um, uh, but as regreening is sort of a graduate process, uh, and previously um, the co-founder of Just Dig It, Dennis, and myself were also involved in a project called Dance for Life. We always uh, had this uh, thought in the back of our heads to do something with music again, and together with a dedicated team of specialists from the digital festival, people from IDNT, Olga, and, and a few others, we, uh, we organized the first um, pilot edition of the Raindance project this year, whereby we organized simultaneous events in Kenya, Tanzania, and Vondel Park here in Amsterdam uh, on the 14th of September this year. Uh, and I have to say, in Kenya and Tanzania, it was really in the rural areas, so in areas where people have never ever seen a stage, let alone a concert or anything like that. So it was really using the power of music and events as a reward for those people who have been working their asses off to regreen the land, um, and to use the power of music to celebrate their achievements, but also to, to look ahead of the uh, enormous restoration potential we have on our planet. Because science dictates that if we are able to restore what's left to restore on our planet, which is twice the size of Europe or twice the size of China, because I just learned this by coincidence, they're almost the same size, about 10 million square kilometers, we would mitigate global warming by almost half, 37 or 40%, depends on which study you ask. And in doing so, have a lot of positive impact on food, on water, on biodiversity, on livelihoods, and a lot of stuff. So we really believe nature-based solutions are the way to go. It will bring people closer to nature, what we seem to have lost. I think that's one of the bigger topics that we see here at ADE Green, which I think there's a very, very important to talk about. But um, restoring nature has a huge potential, and people sort of, especially in the urban areas, have lost that connection to nature. And we can restore an, a hectare of degraded soil for 30 euros. So you do the math, if we can restore twice the size of Europe, it's not that expensive. So we really try to use any communication tool available um, to spread that message and um, not to be too negative. And I love what Extinction Rebellion is doing, but we also believe people really need hope and solutions and something they can buy into. So we try to show that nature-based solutions is the way forward and we really believe music has a very important role to play in getting that into the hearts and minds of people. Um, this was only the pilot, so the real rain dance will start in 2020, um, hopefully in more African and more European cities. But uh, yeah, 15,000 people is quite a big pilot, so it was, uh, it was something big. Wicked. Paul, what do you get for sharing your experience on launching the industry campaigns that you have successfully managed with regards to climate change? So Drastic on Plastic and also the Take Your Tent Home campaign. Yeah, sure. So two campaigns. I think the starting point for us was what can we do collectively as an industry, as independent festivals that will have a great, greater impact um, than acting individually. And there are a few isolated 
projects. Um, there was a festival we're doing one called the Final Straw that was looking at plastic straws. But this led to a conversation within the membership. Um, and thanks to people like Chris Johnson at Shambhala for pushing this conversation forward and uh, Raw Foundation, who we partnered with on, on Drastic on Plastic, to actually, you know, what else can we do? Because to talk about straws is one thing, but actually most high street businesses have banned them, and we're supposed to be a creative kind of pioneering industry, so it needs to go beyond that. Um, so we came up with Drastic on Plastic. There's a couple of elements to this. Um, so it was a digital campaign, so on Earth Day last year, um, there was a simultaneous... We digitally wrapped all of the festival websites in plastic. I think you can sort of see in one of these slides that'll pop up. Um, so for 24 hours, people will go to that website, they'll be able to find out more facts about plastic, you know, some of them uh, festival specific, and how many tons of, you know, 23,500 tons generated um, by, by outdoor events, and I think that's, that's a conservative estimate. Um, so that was the flashpoint. It got a lot of media attention. It reached over 15 million people online. Obviously, it was a well-timed campaign, and that was a conversation in, in wider society as well. Um, but the more important aspect of it, because I think the media attention is only ever a means to an end, is that all of our members um, committed to completely eliminating single-use plastic on their festival sites um, across a three-year timetable. So we're now in the second year of that, and we're monitoring the results of it. There's some quite positive results coming out of it, which I, I can talk about because it's important to track these things and that it isn't just a tick box. Um, yeah, so people say, well, why three years? Why not now? The truth is events are at varying stages with this. You know, you've got people that are, that are way ahead and pioneering, like I mentioned, Shambhala. They eliminated single-use plastic years ago. But there were festivals that weren't even thinking about this, really. And it's not an overnight process. You can't just flip the switch. So we felt that three years was a realistic timetable to have that pledge. Um, and in the first year, we found, you know, we surveyed the members, and 87% of them promoted reusable bottles. 93% had, had banned straws. You know, that's a, a relatively easy win. Um, and 40% and actually had banned the sale of, of drinks in single-use plastic. So, you know, I think there's some positive results there, given that's only the, the year one of three, really. And we're, we're on this path collectively, together, working towards this goal as a tangible. Um, so that was the pledge. The next steps, thinking about that, um, led to this year's campaign, which was more public-facing. So it was take your tent home say no to single use. So it was a more audience-facing campaign. Um, it's a huge problem. It was something that was coming up repeatedly around the table with the members, you know, having to deal with the fallout of abandoned tents. There was a lot of misconceptions around it. I think a lot of well-meaning well initiatives had created this perception of, um, you know, if you leave your tent, it'll be redistributed. Um, to a charity or a refugee camp or something. And sadly, in, in the vast majority of cases, that won't happen. Um, and they can't be incinerated, and they're going to go to landfill, really. So this is more of a public education campaign. So we created an animated video. Again, it was simultaneous. So all of our members pushed the button on a particular day on that campaign, because obviously our members are the ones that have sort of huge audiences, I think, over 800,000 people between them. 
um, attending their events and you know obviously the digital reach of that um, again is is amplified you know there's 250,000 abandoned tents in the UK and it was trying to equate that problem with the single-use plastic crisis and I don't think a lot of customers were thinking about it in those terms you know you can talk about straws but actually if you leave a tent, you know, the average sort of two-man tent is the equivalent of 8,750 straws, you know? So it was quite remarkable. So trying to frame things in, in that way, not in a heavy-handed way, you know, but to say, please, you know, just take your tent home. You can massively improve your own individual footprint at the event simply by, um, by taking that with you. Um, again, there was a high level of engagement, reached over 12, 12 million people online, a lot of media attention. Again, I think there's, you know, we, we put a lot of planning into these campaigns. There's steering groups, and we really knock it into shape, and we kick it around. We partner with experts, um, because obviously we're, we're not the experts in, in everything, so I think that's an important part of any campaign, is to get that, that input and really shaping it so that you know you have a story and a narrative that the media can get hold of. And then the exciting part of that, really, because it's all very well having a flashpoint before the season, but um, it actually continues throughout the season. So you've probably there's some images there that, you know, festivals displaying uh, signage with the Take Your Tent Home message. Um, and, it, and it really had a life on site as well, which I think is really important because that's when people are, you know, in the psychology of these things, they have to be thinking about it while they're actually at the event. So, yeah, we're just figuring out how we quantify that, but there's been some initial good results from individual festivals on a sort of reduction. And I think it's a longer game, really, of just reiterating um, those messages and our collective commitment to it. Thanks, Paul. I feel like there were some good tips for like engaging an audience and getting people on board with that stuff in there. So, thank you, Eli. Tell us about DJs for Climate Action. Why has it been important to you to bring artists into the conversation? I mean, I think that it's uh, you know the more we talk about this stuff and the more we engage with different people in the industry, it really seems like there's you know there's the three sides: there's the artists, there's the festivals, and there's the managements and agents, and then of course the public is a whole other thing, but. I mean, I think that artists, as the creators, have the most power to drive change, you know? I mean, there's great initiatives happening here in Holland. There's so many festivals doing great things. There's things happening in the UK, maybe not as much in the US yet. We have a lot of work to do, but I mean, it's happening from the festival side, and it's really important, you know, for the artists to be the idealists and the ones who are pushing the ideas to make the festivals do better, you know, get their agents and managers thinking more about routing, thinking more about traveling sustainably and I mean in the end we we have the power you know if we have enough artists who who care about this and who are talking about this and who are taking a stand we can really change the industry quickly and beyond that it it is the best way to reach the public right because if artists are doing this and artists are publicizing this talking to their fans about it engaging with their fans taking these initiatives then it becomes something that's cool for everybody to do and I think that's the bottom line here you know we're not trying to make people feel guilty about their their climate choices. We're trying to get them excited to make better choices and get educated and actually make a difference themselves. What difficulties have you come up against um, campaigning in the music industry? You know, I, it's really incredible how many artists, you know, just mentioning this to them, want to do something but don't know what to do. 
I don't really know if we've encountered specific difficulties yet. It really seems like with enough energy, it's just going to increase and it's and it's really going to make a difference. I don't I don't know. I don't know what we're really up against. You know, I mean, there's you know, there's the look, there's the whole system in place, right? Of the festivals have to make money. The artists have to make money. Everybody has to make money off this. So this is something we have to be realistic about. Right. It's not going to happen overnight. Like you said, three years to get rid of plastics at festivals. And that's like, you know, going to be harder in some places. Um, so I think, you know, setting realistic goals together as an industry that we can then try to meet and get the, and publicize, I think maybe is the most important thing, you know, not to, not to feel bad, not to feel guilty about it, but to be really positive and do this together. Mm. And what's been encouraging for you to see as an artist campaigning in music? I mean, being here at ADE Green is really encouraging. I'm, I, you know, we had been working in our little, in our little world with DJs for Climate Action for, for years, since 2011, and um, didn't really know how much was happening in the greater industry around the world. And I feel like in the last year in general, there has been so much connection happening um, in sustainability and dance music. And that's just really exciting. And then being here and seeing so many people who are working in this world and also interested in learning more about it is, is great. Mm, thank you. Benji, would you like to tell us a bit more about Meadows in the Mountains? Um, yeah, so Meadows in the Mountains um, was started in 2011. Um, it's our 10th birthday this year. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it started not as a festival. It started as a group of friends on a mountain um, listening to music. And, um, you know, we discovered the sunrise and then it became a bit of a thing. And <laughs> now... Its primary focus is really trying to bring environmental aspects into it and pioneer that, you know. So, like, we banned single-use plastics a few years ago and we have reusable metal flasks and cups and ashtrays. It was actually um, where I met Eli at Burning Man in 2013. I was very much blown away by, like, the leave-no-trace policy they had there. And I haven't really been to another festival that kind of replicates that, although they have... Um, other carbon emission issues, like the leave no trace policy at Burning Man is second to none in, in my opinion. Mm. And um, yeah, so now we're really trying to pioneer that and um, it's hard being in Bulgaria, um, which is, you know, a newly, um, a new member of the EU, they're quite far behind like the rest of the European Union. So like recycling isn't really such a big thing there, but um, yeah, it's, it's a great project to be part of, and I'm really excited what we're going to create in the next 10 years. And um, I really hope that we can help set these standards across the industry because I think it's wrong that people are profiting from um, things like music, music festivals, but at the same time damaging the environment. Um, you know, protecting the environment should come first. And you mentioned that you're involved with Extinction Rebellion. For those people who live here in Amsterdam and haven't been over to London, would you be able to give us some insight as to what it's like on the ground right now? Um, it's intense. Um, this rebellion is very different to the last one. <clears throat> the last one, um, the police had a lot more of a laid-back approach. This time they came in pretty hard. Uh, we had 12 different areas across Westminster and around the political region of London. And... Um, <clears throat> we lost 11 of the 12 sites in the first three days. 
<coughs> I think they mobilized something like 80,000 police. Um, and yeah, the arrests were, were, were double what they were last time, which is a good thing. Um, obviously, that is one of the main points of Extinction Rebellion is through um, non-violent civil disobedience. So looking at um, Martin Luther King and Gandhi's um, movements, that was the way they changed their systems was through non-violent civil disobedience. So um, yeah, it was, um, it's, it's, it's been hard. We've been on the back foot. And, um, but I think there's been a lot of changes with the police. Um, they've banned Extinction Rebellion from being in London, which is basically banning protest, which is one of our free rights as you know humans. We have a right to protest, and they've banned it. And so now there's cracks forming within the police, high-level decisions that have been made that have been questioned by other people within the police. So, you know, although it's been a hard rebellion this time, I think that there's been some changes occurring which are positive and the people are still strong, the people are still united. And it has been very much, you know, like water, like Hong Kong, um, not being attached to an area, but knowing that the people, when they're in their numbers and moving around, that's, that's the powerful part of it. And that's where the message comes from. And as a person whose background is working in music and festivals, what do you feel like you've been able to bring to the protests? Um, well, a lot of the people that work for Extinction Rebellion are volunteers, so they don't um, necessarily have the experience. So I've been quite lucky to have 10 years of experience running a music festival and bringing that um, into the Extinction Rebellion fold. Um, you know, bringing together all the music contacts that we have, um, the bookings, the set design, um, you know, being able to put something up quickly in, um, you know, not in a workshop prefabricated environment, like out on the streets building stuff. Um, so yeah, that's been a lot of work being able to bring to it and working under a high stressful environment like a music festival, um, I would say Extinction Rebellion is a lot more stressful and, and high intensity, but um, yeah, that's what I've been able to bring to it, I guess. For sure. How's everyone else on the panel feeling about Extinction Rebellion? Has anyone got any thoughts that they would like to share, aspirations? concerns well there's one thing we have extinction rebellion of course uh, also here in amsterdam and i think uh, maybe it's just a bit of a dutch subject but if you see we have a farmer protest going on in the netherlands right now and when extinction rebellion came out they were moved immediately when they wanted to set camp here in the center of amsterdam but the farmers can drive through city hallways doors and still get away with it and uh, block half the country not nothing against the farmers but i think it's they're not treated equally to some of the other protesters and again it's a civil right to be able to protest so I think there should be more respect and freedom for Extinction to Berlin to grow because it's such an important movement. Yeah, we're absolutely supportive of the top line demands there and applaud the tactics as well. We've actually, uh, Extinction Rebellion is speaking at our conference in a couple of weeks, Festival Congress, talking about the tactics and the campaign planning. Um, is it a challenge to work within such a, because in my contact with them is very decentralized, can that be challenging at times in terms of the sort of logistics of everything and, and sort of, I mean, we just, this week there was um, some quite heavy criticism around some commuter trains in London and that seemed to be a bit of a divisive, you know, do you go that way because that's target, 
targeting people that are taking public transport. So how is it sort of managed, really? Um, uh, yeah, I think learning to live in a world which is decentralized and without hierarchy is something new. And I think it's great because it makes us all equal. There's no leaders um, and it's hard to get your head around and it lo sometimes it takes a lot longer to make a decision because everyone has to sit around and talk about it and decide as a group, as a collective, what we want. But ultimately, I think that is the key to system change is everyone having an opinion and not having it all bottlenecked with some hierarchical people um, in, in governments, you know, and that's why one of the three demands is to have a citizens assembly which sits over the governments and kind of acts as an advisory body. Um, it's, it's giving the people back the power and not having, you know, this hierarchical leadership. But yeah, it's hard, but um, you get, it takes some getting used to. I think we've never needed it more in the UK right now. <laughs> Jada, did you have any thoughts about Extinction Rebellion? I'm just a big fan. That, I've always been a big fan. And I think like the biggest thing I was like so pumped on, I think I was DJing on a NTS and someone on like, cause you have a screen that has like the comments section um, while you're uh, DJing um, on the radio. And someone said like, Jada G, like, you're actually talking about the environment, big love from Extinction Rebellion. I was like, oh my goodness. Like that is like the best comment I've ever received. So no, I'm a, I'm a really big fan. And I think what you guys are doing is so fantastic and super commendable and I think we've been in touch with you guys anyway so it's um, in terms of my side of the team so yeah all right we are going to take some questions for the audience very soon so if you have questions then start thinking of them right now uh, before we do though I have one final question for everyone here which is what can we do in this room and for everyone listening at home what can we do to contribute to pushing things forward Eli well, I mean, there's so much we can do personally with sustainability, right? It's like not eating meat is one that we talk, hear about all the time. It's taking trains when you can take trains. You know, it's it's trying to grow your own food. It's There's so many things. It's investing instead of a lot of countries now you can check with your energy company to get renewable energy. You can invest in, invest in community solar. You know, if you, own a, if you own a house, you can put solar on your house. There's so many things that we can do personally. But in the end, what we really need is systematic change, right? Even if we all go and do this ourselves, it's not going to stop climate change. And so the most important thing is to get engaged in your political system in your country, right? Or get involved in protests and other things that are going to actually push for systematic change. And I think, you know, as a being from the U.S., there's a lot of propaganda that voting doesn't matter. And that's how we've kind of ended, in the, ended up in the situation that we're in now. We're one of the least engaged politically, politi yeah, least engaged countries politically, with with the least popul least percentage of the population voting. And so I think it's so important to actually go vote. If you're American, go vote and don't get tricked that it's like the lesser of two evils. It's always a much better path, and we're seeing that now. So you know, wherever you are, get involved and get out and vote. I think that's that would be my biggest encouragement. Thanks, Benji. Um, yeah, I want to concur what Eli just said, but also um, for me, one of the big points was to not let my life be run by making money and do what was actually felt morally right. And obviously working for Extinction Rebellion now doesn't really pay me that much money. I just about scrape by, 
but I feel like the most alive I've ever felt by doing what I really care about every day. And I know that not everybody has that opportunity to do that, but if you do have the opportunity to change what you do every day for work and try and make it a positive change, um, yeah, I think that's a great thing to be able to do. Um, I think, first of all, the change is going to come from all of us, and not from the government or the NGOs, but really from the brands and from people and from artists. So choose your brands that you wear or that you buy stuff from selectively. Um, I see a lot of big changes going on in that side. And I think we should always approach this as not something really negative, but see it as an opportunity and something positive that we can embrace. Because um, I feel if you put it too much from the two degrees warming or the, the, the troubles that we are facing, because everybody knows we are facing issues, it's going to numb people. So I try to bring hope and inspiration and, yeah, again, be selective in the, in the brands that you engage with, because there are many good brands out there that will actually do care about the environment. Yeah, just echo some of the sentiments. I think individual behavior change is one thing, but things really need to change systemically and at policy level. And I think we just have to work collectively on these issues because they transcend boundaries or any sort of factionalism and, you know, you're talking about the habitability of the, the planet. So, yeah, we just need to talk to each other and share ideas and, yeah, maintain that engagement with, with these topics, really. Thanks, Paul. Jada? Uh, no, I agree with all of you. I think the biggest thing that we can do is um, talk to each other, um, engage with the natural environment in a positive way, obviously. Um, like, go outside. Hug a tree. Like... I'm sorry, has anyone done that? You, it actually makes you feel so good. I know it sounds strange, but really, go outside because that is the biggest thing, I think, is having that day-to-day -day interaction with literally the most important thing in all of our lives, as well as getting involved with your political system and demanding for more. Okay, the rest of our time this afternoon is all on you guys. So if you have a question for our panel, then make yourself known and we'll get a microphone to you. We've got one right here at the front. I don't come from the music industry, I come from the alcohol industry. And I see that um, alcohol, we'll call it spirits and beer and all that, and craft drinks, uh, go together with uh, festivals very often. Billions in profit uh, in the drinks industry. And I was wondering if you guys um, are actually do you feel supported by the drinks industry or do you feel that the drinks industry is actually going against your own cause? In terms of, are you getting any, any money like uh, sponsoring or do you think that what the drinks industry is doing is actually just making money out of your own causes? I mean, yeah, I mean, drinks industry is, is integral in festival sponsorship and making festivals happen and therefore getting artists paid. Um, but like with so much of this stuff, it's like this conflict, right? With DJs who have to fly, you have to make a living, but you also have to fly. Or like, you know, for festivals to be able to pay the artists, they have to get the sponsorship from drinks. So I don't, it's, you know, it's like we're talking about really trying to choose the right drinks companies or maybe look more locally or, you know, trying to push for change in those companies from our industry being such a huge um, consumer of, of drink. Yeah, I think obviously, you know, that sort of ancillary ancillary kind of streams of income, including sponsorship, kind of integral to festivals. But I do think the drinks companies and the bigger businesses, you're already seeing it, they're starting to look at how they can operate kind of more sustainably. And again, it might be a sort of like you're trying to 
turn the Titanic around or something or, or make it kind of swerve the iceberg. But I think, I think that's the thing. We don't hear enough about the kind of business case for sustainability. Like people talk about every other element of festivals in that sense. And yet they don't really talk about the business case for sustainability. But I think that's starting to change really. Okay, let's take another question. Yeah, I was quite curious and I want to add a little thing on what you said. I worked uh, inside from one of the big drink companies this year, as it was one of our clients. And I thought it was very disappointing, actually, how they, uh, I'm not going to mention the, the brand, but of course that's not good for me now. <laughs> but um, I was wondering, though, is there a driver, like really a brand that do, does stand up and drive the agency of the, 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 let's say, the festival world forward? So like, let's say a Patagonia does like, we're here to save the planet. Is there like a main player or brand that does really put their full force into it and, and tries to do something? From our experience, I can only say Timberland as being one of the partners here, but also the way they commit to not only because CSR, a lot of companies did CSR, so they said we do something good because we have to and then the chairman of the board gives a check to some charity and then we put it in our year report. But I really believe there's a purpose revolution going on where there are brands that actually do, are starting to interact with consumers who believe that brands can actually make bigger change because they are so powerful in, in daily life. So for me, Timberland is a great example of a brand that's really doing it, not because they are trying to greenwash anything, but because their people and the whole organization is very much dedicated to actually make that change. And of course, if it's benefiting them in a PR or perception-wise, it's good, but they do it. A purpose has to come from an authentic, you have to really mean it. You know, you cannot use environmental issues or ecological issues to greenwash your, your company that people will see right through that. But there are companies like Patagonia and Timberland out there that actually authentically believe in what they're doing. And then I think it's a great example and, and it can really accelerate the change that we need. So for me, that's one example. Hey, I just wanted to ask questions for Eli, Jada, and Benji. How is your audience responding to you guys putting this so on top of your agendas? Um, I think in terms of my fan base, they're really into it. Yeah, when I started the talk series, I was uh, uh, I was pleasantly surprised at how happy it made everyone and how engaged everyone got. People were really asking a lot of questions and coming to the events and really just wanting to be a part of it. And I think, again, like that's the best way that you can use your own platform in that way to bring it to causes that really mean something to you as an artist. Yeah, I mean, it's it's generally very positive. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of this attitude, I think, in the public that when you're too political, you kind of get called out, like just stick to music, you don't know what you're talking about. So there's always these like trolls out there, right? But I think overall, people are people are very receptive, you know, especially with climate stuff. I just think that it's now become such a pervasive issue for everybody. And young people are really, really engaging with it. So it's it's something that they really connect with, for sure. Yeah, with regard to Meadows, I think um, the our audience is really engaging with it. Um, they're learning a lot about, you know, how to plant a tree to offset emissions, like how they can just by having a reusable flask or an ashtray, they can eliminate their plastic use massively. Um, so I, I, you know, I think a lot of these people come to the festival and they take it home with them and they engage with it and try and look, look at new ways of, of being able to take what they've learned at the festival in their day-to-day -day life. So yeah, I think it's especially, like um, Eli just said, like young people as well. It's, it's very much a, um, 
important issue for them, right? Because it's their futures which are going to be affected. So I think young people are taking it forward a lot more. They're engaging with it well. And I think at their best, festivals are the platforms for social change and demonstrating the kind of power of communities. You know, it, it goes way beyond escapism or hedonism for a lot of people attending. Should we get another question? We're going right to the back. Yeah, guys. Um, so this goes mostly to the left side of the panel, I guess, when you're doing industry events and interesting campaigns and stuff like that. Um, and it sort of relates to your statement earlier about uh, a single tent being a bit more effective than a lot of plastic straws. Um, but how much of your work is evidence-based? How much if, if it's based on impact assessments? Uh, is that something you guys are working towards in the future? I realize it's difficult to do it in the first year. But uh, yeah, how much of your work is evidence-based and how much are you working towards that? Yeah, evidence-based in as much as is out there and available, you know, and a lot of that is dependent on individual festivals and the sort of kind of waste impact reports they have, but we certainly draw upon that and there's an increasingly more kind of information out there um, to inform that work because, yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely got to be underpinned by that um, and you've got to know. I, I think, yeah, I think the timing of these campaigns, though, there's been a lot in the wider context and sustainability stats and, you know, the kind of headline arresting kind of more fish, more plastic than fish in the oceans by 2050. And I think, yeah, I think you can you can use those. Um, I think our challenge really is then quantifying the impact of what we've done. Like with the tents thing, we're, we're you know, we're trying to figure that out. It's, do we talk to, is it a survey of the waste contractors? Is it gathering what we can from the festivals, it's probably both, you know, but it, it can be, yeah, it's important to know that you have had some sort of tangible impact, but it's, it's how you measure that, really. Uh, I'm really curious, because all the stuff that you've been talking about, it's really amazing, but how can consumers and also smaller brands or small artists protect themselves from uh, greenwashing? Because a lot of times when you're out there and you're looking for information, for example, like you see, oh yeah, this shampoo bottle was made from recycled plastic, and then you see, oh, it's actually one, uh, 0.0001% of recycled plastic, so it's really an ongoing terrible battle. What's your advice? Um, yeah, it, to read very well, obviously, to also lead to, read the small letters, but I think more and more, um, uh, there needs to be bylaws so that everything needs to be transparent so that a brand actually has to communicate all of its production processes, and I think there's a big change going on in fashion industry and phone industry, and so many of the products are becoming more critically examined as to what their claims are to sustainability. Um, and I think just read as much as you can and try not to get your information only from the brand itself, but also from communities around it who are way more critical, obviously, than the brand itself most of the time. Um, and I believe in the long run, greenwashing is something that is not going to stick for a long time. You may be able to use it for a short campaign, but in the long run, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but the truth will come out. And it's the worst thing that can happen to your brand is actually being accused of greenwashing. So I think it's, yeah, uh, the, the real brands that are authentically doing something and are um, communicating around it, they're putting, they're, they're, they're taking a risk if they don't do it uh, in an authentic way. So get as much information as you can. And of course, stick to the usual suspects that you know are actually the brands that are doing it in a, in a very convincing manner. Can I just add one thing to that, which is also, I mean, when it comes to fashion, and there's some industries where you can just consume less, right? With fashion, you can buy vintage. So that's reusing. I mean, that's a huge thing you can do. And, and any, any chance you have to, you know, not buy products that are in packages or that are 
in reusable packages is a great way you can you know make an impact as well. And I think that's it. It's not not about the draconian kind of policing of plastic, but just about shifting towards a reuse model over a single-use model. I think that's fundamentally what we're talking about. Um, I think your name is Benjamin, if I follow correctly. Um, you're an Extinction Rebellion, and a lot of people are obviously supporting what you're doing. Do you sometimes um, get frustrated at the us versus them dialogue that people have. So what you're doing as Extinction Rebellion is great, whereas they may be missing that they sh could also just be a part of it, that it involves everybody to, to actually join and give their time and energy to? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is very much an us thing, right? It's, it's the people, uh, it's the people's movement. So um, I try not to get too bogged down by the us versus them thing and just focus on what we're trying to do positively and just make it as welcoming to everyone, you know? There's a working group in every neighborhood um, that you can just go to once a week and, and join, and that can be your way of, of putting your time into it. So it's a very open, accessible movement for everyone. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. I think it was well needed to say. Thank you for that. <laughs> Someone's right, mum's calling. <laughs> Someone was meant, they were meant to be home by now. <laughs> Uh, should we take just one more question? Yeah, there's something that adds up to your question for Benjamin and the, the, uh, with regards to uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, I've got something to, th to think about because I, um, I'm convinced that um, this form of, of protest and activism is really necessary to create awareness. However, there's one thing, and I noticed this watching the, the, the protests in Amsterdam, that it also creates a lot of resistance, especially among those groups in society that you really would like to address to get something done. And uh, you're, for, the, for, the long, for the long term vision, I think it should be wise to also think of other ways, more positive ways maybe than only protest, to reach out to these groups because the change should also come from them. You know, change is something that we can all only create by doing, uh, working together. But uh, I sensed around me that, that, that the protest mass in, in, uh, in, in Amsterdam also created resistance uh, among people that you should really would like to reach to do something about climate change. Do you, know, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, um, I think I know what you're trying to say. There's other parts of society that don't feel as included. And I think, exactly. yeah, I think that's something that with Extinction Rebellion, it's not just about climate change, it's about breaking down all the other barriers in our society that are wrong, you know, like racism, ageism, you know, all of the isms and all the other way that they create boundaries for us and put us in these boundaries. We need to break those down and we all need to unite together. So it's not just about addressing climate change, it's about addressing all of these other issues in our society at the same time which makes it quite an overwhelming issue. But I think that, you know, together we have the power to, to, do, to do what we need to do. But um, I agree with you. There's a lot of parts of society that are not, they don't feel included in it. And, you know, Extinction Rebellion is working to try and break those barriers down and be able to offer everyone in society a place to protest and, and have, their, have their, you know, feelings heard. 
All right, that's all we have time for today. This is obviously a huge subject that we could talk about for many, many hours. But thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you to all of our panelists for sharing your knowledge. Thanks to all our panellists on this month's edition of The Hour, and thank you for listening. We're back in 2020 with more documentaries, interviews and discussion.